Language Chats. This is a podcast for language lovers in Australia and beyond, where we share our experiences as well as stories from other Australians of learning, working with and using other languages. I'm Beck. And I'm Penny, and welcome to another episode of Language Chats. We are super excited to have you with us again today. And we have two guests for you in this episode, Andrew and Sharon. So welcome to the podcast, you two. Thank you. Hi, Beck. Hi, Penny. Hello. So we'll get to their stories um, in a little bit. In fact, let's just jump straight in and perhaps we can start off with a little bit about you both and how you both came to be into languages, which ultimately for both of you led to a career in teaching languages. Maybe Sharon, do you want to do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm uh, I'm Chinese. Um, I grew up grew up in China, and um, I started learning English uh, at ten years. 10 years old um, I was in primary school and there was a primary school teacher who was just opening a private um, class at his home and um, he used the textbook called Muzzy which is a BBC program that's been around for over 30 years and um, I was just really really interested in the, the stories and um you know, being exposed to a, a foreign language and um, just learning to say say it and uh, pronounce the different sounds. It was fascinating for me and all I was doing was just imitating what I was hearing and um, I guess um, I, I was doing quite well and and because I had this kind of feeling of success and I just got more and more interested so that motivation got me um, going, and and then English was a compulsory um, language subject in China for all over the country. So um, I just kept doing it all the way, and um, it just got better and better yeah. for me. Uh, it was my my favorite subject at school, so I obviously spent a lot more time on this subject than other subjects. So I got better and better. And that's how I, yeah, started learning my first language. Oh, that's great. Well, yeah, good story. And how about you, Andrew? Because you've got a, a language background as well. Yeah, mine, mine's a little bit different. Um, as a kid, my mum was a music teacher and my dad was a mechanic. Um, and he started to um, go to night school and retrain to become a teacher. So he kind of became... I went from being a blue collar worker to a white collar worker at the worst possible time because now white white collar workers aren't really paid that well and blue collar workers tend to be paid quite well. Um, But uh, they had fond memories of going to Japan for their honeymoon. And so my dad trained to become a Japanese teacher. And so as a kid, um, another thing is I'm the eldest of um, five. So to supplement the income, even though both my parents worked full time, it still is uh, was barely enough to um, make ends meet. So um, we often had um, exchange students living with us, like home homestay students, and so um, the majority of them, certainly in my early childhood, were from Japan. And so that was another avenue where I was exposed to Japanese at an early age, whether it was from 
um, simple hiragana and katakana books that um, dad brought back once he started teaching Japanese at a high school. Um, and then later on, it was things like video games that he would bring back with him. And then finally, it was um, hearing it um, fr from the homestay students themselves. Um, uh, another reason I was fortunate was um, I went to a high school that offered two languages concurrently, which is quite rare in Australia. Most they might have one one semester and then the other the second semester, but I was doing both of them at the same time. And they had an option whereby you could continue um, studying two languages. Um, so um, at the end of uh, at the start of year eight, there was one class that was made up entirely of students who were continuing two languages concurrently. And then by year nine, there was a much smaller cohort, I'd say about 10 of us that were still doing Japanese and French, um, but we were all in the same home room for timetabling reasons. Where, yeah, and, um, and then after year nine, I, my family moved over to Japan because by that stage, my mum had retrained as a Japanese teacher because the music jobs, a lot of um, schools were cutting their arts funding, so couldn't really get a, a job as a music teacher anymore. Um, and so I did year, I repeated year nine and did year 10 over there. And so that left me, it was, it's kind of nice because that's the end of your um, critical learning period, according to Chomsky. So it meant that I was able to pick up a reasonably fluent accent speaking Osaka dialect and yeah, and then um, at uni, I picked up Chinese and Korean and I've basically taken the ball and ran with it. And do you think, Andrew, that so both both teachers in your family, both parents in your family being Japanese teachers, is that what inspired you to, to continue then on and do teaching? Or was that an independent decision where you just felt like you always wanted to do teaching? Um, my parents recommended that I um, consider it as a backup career. And so that was kind of the intention that I had going into it. It was something that um, certainly I enjoyed, like I enjoyed imparting knowledge to others and having those discussions. And I enjoy kind of that um, didactic kind of relationship. Um, but it wasn't something I was planning to get into as early as I did. And just a... Um, number of career avenues didn't really plan out the way that I had hoped. And so um, in my 30s, I found myself deciding to get into teaching a bit earlier than I'd planned, but no regrets. That's cool. Hey, um, Sharon, what about your your pathway to teaching? Did you finish high school and decide, yep, teaching's what I want to do? I actually wanted to become a teacher when I was in year eight or nine. Uh, in China when uh, I didn't have a very good homeroom teacher and that was the reason why I wanted to become a, a just a much better teacher and so I was just you know thinking like daily um, what I would do if I was to become a teacher and so that dream kind of just kept going um, and then I went to university, but um, my major was electronic commerce, which was nothing, <laughs> had nothing to do with teaching. Um, and my favorite subject was, you know, foreign languages. But because um, in China, uh, when you get up to um, year 11, 12, you only have two choices. Either you do humanities or you do science. And I was uh, more of a science student, so I chose science. 
but for science students, when you choose majors in the university, um, languages is not one of them. So as a science student, I couldn't choose languages as my major. So I, I chose electronic commerce, which I later found out that I wasn't really interested in. <laughs> but it was already too late for me to change. Um, so after having like some discussions with my parents and my dad particularly, he said, you know, if you really want to become a teacher and you love learning languages, then maybe after you graduate from your bachelor degree, then you can learn something that's more relevant to, to teaching and languages. So I thought, yeah, that's probably what I was going to do. So um, I just applied for education um, major in uh, some overseas universities and one of them being Melbourne U and I got in so that's how I started learning education and um, luckily I, I uh, did my placement at a school where the my mentor really liked me and um, she just offered me a language assistant job right away after I finished my uh, placement so I was kind of doing my studies and at the same time working and it was just natural for me to, to start working at that school after I graduated and then, um, yeah, so that's how I my, my teaching career started. That's so good um, and great that you got to continue on at the school where you had done your placement too because I guess that must actually be for lots of people quite um, quite unusual. Um, but really good for you that you had such a good relationship with them. Um, how have you both experienced the, so I suppose the increased focus on um, learning Chinese as a second language in Australia? Maybe, maybe um, Andrew, can we, we'll start with you. Um, yeah, it's um, kind of ebbs and flows a little bit, um, but it's definitely one of the languages that, the government, I guess, officially puts emphasis on, but then doesn't really back it up with um, um, any kind of uh, strong level of support. So there's a number of um, systemic factors that um, limit particularly non-background students from pursuing the language, uh, one of which is the, the fact that our... Um, the, the final exams, the high stakes exams, they're all marked on a bell curve. So it doesn't matter if you individually have a good understanding of the language, the mere fact that a number of background students, despite the fact that there are three tiers that exist, um, I, I don't know if I should share for your listeners, but, but I might explain the situation in Victoria. So currently there are three tiers of um, Chinese. There is Chinese as a first language, there's Chinese as a second language advanced. There's Chinese second language. And in addition to these three tiers, there has been an additional subject that's been added called China, Chinese language, culture and society, um, which I not very nicely refer to as kind of Chinese for dummies. But um, uh, so Chinese first language is uh, aimed at international students who are studying it here, who are doing English as a second language. Chinese Second Language Advanced is designed for students who have, have some in-country experience, usually more than a year, I believe, in a Chinese school. Um, whereas uh, Chinese Second Language is meant to be uh, for students with limited background, but what it means that a lot of students who have attended 
um, even community schools are eligible to continue with this subject. And what that means in places with a high density of um, Chinese students is students in the classroom don't feel that they can compete. They feel that it they have an unfair advantage, um, that background students have an unfair advantage. And my problem with that line of thinking is, well, a lot of you will go to kids whose parents are physicists, whose parents are doctors, and the same kind of excuses aren't put up for poor performance in maths, for example. So um, I, I do have a little beef with that line of re reasoning. And at the same time, it's if you look at the high achievers um, in the paper at the end of the year, um, basically every single one has a Chinese surname. And so that can be very discouraging for a teacher who is trying to attract Australian students to the program. And so I often have to be very frank with them and say, um, you need to be thinking beyond your year 12 score. And sometimes that's not enough of a um, of, of an offer for students to continue with the subject. And they we tend to lose a lot of good students who um, are aiming to maximise their ATAR. And um, it's, it's a liability for them to continue studying Chinese. Did you have anything to add, Sharon? No, I agree. I, I tell the same thing to my year 12 students in the past. Um, don't really think about the score and don't compare yourself to the background students because um, most importantly, the language is going to be so useful in your later life. Like when you go find a job, um, it's not just, you know, a score to help you get into university. I try to further encourage my students by mentioning that the the school I teach at is very lucky to have um, a strong association of alumni, um, a number of whom who've been able to study in country um, with the government having picking up the tab. So I try to remind them of those kind of opportunities that are available, uh, as well as the you know potential job opportunities that are available. I was just going to say too that wouldn't it be great if if we all kind of recognize that we all have different strengths when it comes to language learning and just because one of us might have a you know a heritage or background or access to native speakers in our home for example doesn't mean that we're you know automatically going to be amazing speakers or readers or writers and that the same goes for the opposite as well just because you don't have access to that doesn't mean you're not going to be great um, so I hope that you know one day that that everyone will kind of have an understanding that, you know, everyone is able to learn languages and it's not just from your background or your access to, to people who can speak the language. That's, that's an aside. What I was going to ask next was what do you see, um, and perhaps Sharon, I'll, I'll ask you first, is what do you see as some of the challenges that you find with students that you've taught Chinese when they're learning Chinese in terms of Australian students? Um, I guess the obvious one is, you know, the, the characters. The character system is so different. So uh, naturally the reading and the writing are the hard, hard part for them to learn. Um, but then I've, I found out that if you focus a lot on the reading and the writing, they can get really good, but you kind of lose the the fluency of the listening and and speaking as well so um as i was raising my children i realized that you know uh there's 
no myth about if you practice one skill, you're going to get better at the other skill. You, you're going to just practice that each skill evenly to get better at every single skill. So you, you can't just get better at speaking if you do a lot of listening and you can't get better at listening if you just do a lot of speaking. So you just have to physically practice each one of them. So um, time basically is the biggest challenge. If you're willing to invest time in it, you're going to get better. These are very wise words. <laughs> I feel for, for anyone who is out there learning any language, um, the remembering to focus on all skills um, and not just, you know, either focusing on the passive skills, for example, or the more active ones, but trying to remember yeah. that it is kind of language is a global, um, you have to have a global view of the different skills in communication. Andrew, did you have anything to add about challenges you see students face? Uh, in addition to what Sharon's mentioned, I'd probably say motivation. So it kind of ties into the, the thing that I had before. Um, students, particularly in the beginning, need some kind of extrinsic motivation. So some kind of thing outside themselves that's like, this is the reason why I want to learn the language. And I think, um, unfortunately, the bad press that's in the media doesn't really help China's case. Whereas in the past, there was a lot of, you know, um, good news. There was boom cycle. Um, we had um, Australian, um, was it Tim Flannery go over there and um, talk to a bunch of um, people and really spruik it up. Whereas at the moment, it's kind of hit a bit of a nadir and no one really, um, yeah, no, no one's out there um well, touring's kind of off, isn't it? Yeah. So um, it would be nice to see that return. Um, hopefully, um, th there are a few good Netflix shows um, that have high production values. Um, so I'm hoping that things like that or um, or even like uh, YouTubers, like there's uh, quite a few good ones who are doing Vox Pops um, on the streets of China. Um, one that I've shown my students is someone who was, um, I think, briefly working for Westpac as like... Um, kind of an intercultural liaison. She's kind of been doing her own thing, um, but has done a really good series of videos on um, tour, uh, like trips to Dongbei in northeast China. Um, but now more recently has been appealing to a Chinese audience by, you know, just taking her family around Sydney and going to different restaurants, particularly Chinese restaurants and getting her parents to try things that they usually you know, get getting them out of their comfort zone because it's fine for her, but it's it's kind of nice as a um as a Chinese audience seeing um uh, Westerners taking time out of their daily life to appreciate things that sometimes even they take for granted. We'll um we'll get the link from you and add it in the show notes. That sounds like a um fun one to to check out. <laughs> um, yeah, happy to. Sharon, you were talking just briefly about um your kids and I know that you've yep. got two little kids what what's what's your language set up at home are you um speaking Chinese to the kids or, or English only or or how does it work in your home yeah um so I we did some reading before um we had our kids like when I was pregnant I, we started getting into like how we were going to bring them up um 
what kind of languages did we want them to learn, and we decided that Chinese and English were definitely, you know, the two uh, must-learn ones. Like they will have no choice to choose. So um, and then uh, from the readings we did, uh, we learned the word "opal," which is one parent, one language. Um, so basically, you just make sure that one parent speaks one language consistently, and the, the kid will just figure it out, and then they will communicate with you in that language over time. So um, I'd be speaking Chinese to them, and Andrew would be speaking English to them. So um, yeah, so it seems like the kids are growing up, you know, knowing two languages evenly. Uh, but then uh, the older one now goes to school, so he gets more exposure to English at school. So his Chinese kind of uh, went from dominant to uh, now English dominant. And <laughs> uh, so I'm the only one speaking Chinese to him. So we're trying to get him to a Saturday, uh, Sunday school to get him a bit more exposure. Yeah, just to try and get the balance. Yeah, and at the same time, we're trying to get him, both of them, to learn um, French and Spanish. Yeah, just to yeah have some diversity. Learn as many yeah. as you can when they're little. Are you, yeah. are you tempted yeah. to throw in Japanese um, we, as well? We know. <laughs> uh, yeah, there is a bit of Japanese as well. Andrew Andrew has got some books, and he reads Japanese to them. And we we play a lot of. Um, animations like Peppa Pig or uh, whatever Netflix kids shows um, that's available and we just try and find them in all kinds of languages apart from English and Chinese because we, we already speak to them in English and Chinese so they have enough exposure to these two languages so when they have their screen time we make sure that it's definitely not going to be in English or Chinese it'll be something else oh that's cool yeah I like that. I love that. I feel like it's made such a big <laughs> difference now that like foreign language TV is so accessible for for everybody, but especially for kids because I know Penny that you've done that with your kids before too. <laughs> Wasn't Peppa Pig only ever available in Chinese at your house? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was until she figured out that <laughs> that she could watch it in English as well. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the, the age is really important to to get the foreign language in their brain before they realize it. It's like um, you know, um, you have a plan, but then they don't know that you have a plan. And when they know that, uh, when they realize, hey, you've got a plan, but it's already too late because they already know the languages by that time. So it's really important to get those in before they realize that yeah 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 they'll thank you later yeah Yeah, exactly and I was just going to add for Luke we were fortunate that um we were able to send Luke to an immersion kinder for a year so there was an immersion kinder in Geelong called La Petite Ecole and so it was a French immersion kinder and I think it also had the advantage that there's a slightly different um structure to kinder and things in in France so a little bit more regimented than they are here so like children are expected to you know wash their hands sit down and eat at a table and and do some of those things to a much more formal degree than they are here where they're kind of let loose um so I, I was 
it was good while it lasted, but unfortunately they decided not to continue operations in Geelong. Um, and uh, another inspiration for Sharon has been um, this uh, little Russian girl, Bella Devyatkina, I think her name. She's like seven, eight, possibly nine now. Yeah, uh, well, she can speak about eight languages to a, quite a high degree of fluency. And so Sharon um, listened to the speech by her mother and has been trying to emulate some of those um, things by, you know, tracking down uh, language tutors, particularly those who can do a bit more play-based yeah. language um, instruction. Because, yeah, like Sharon said, it's, it's, it's all comes down to exposure. And basically, the more hours that you can expose your child to a language, the, the more they are going to learn. Um, I'd like to talk about challenges for a bit, and this could be like a few different, you know, aspects of challenge in your life, whether it's maybe we could talk about challenges you faced as language learners because you've both both learnt languages, um, or maybe challenges that you're facing now as, as teachers in the formal education system, but also as teachers to your, your kids as well. Um, maybe, Andrew, do you want to start maybe just... Have there been any kind of challenges that you faced with your languages and what were they and did you find a way to, to overcome them? Um, I'd say in general, um, probably the biggest one at the moment is making the time, mm. making the time to incorporate regular study and practice because I know that's what works and yet I kind of make excuses in my own life. Um, I'm pretty fortunate that I was able to get to a high degree um, of fluency in Japanese, for example. And so the challenges that I faced along the way were things like particles, um, characters in Japanese as well. Um, but I was able to overcome most of them with rote or drilling. And so if, if anyone's kind of hit a bit of a, um, a hurdle, that's, it's old fashioned, but it works. Um, <laughs> And, and so, yeah, essentially that's what I do for most of my languages. Um, yeah, probably beyond that is um, yeah, not being, being less self-conscious as I've gotten older too. So um, as, as, as I was younger, I was probably a bit more of a perfectionist, a bit protective of being one of the better students in the class and therefore not as willing to make take risks um, but now um, more than happy to take risks in particular in an environment where um, frequently you get um, fellow adult adult students not really willing to raise their hands because they're still in that self-conscious phase um, sometimes they need someone to step up so I'm very very willing to be that person as Sharon <laughs> Sharon can attest to when we um, take French classes together because I'd kind of look around the class and no, no one, everyone else would be kind of looking at the floor, like trying to avoid looking at the teacher. And I'm like, oh, um, whereas, and the teacher, you know, would know that too. And so sometimes she'd have to tell me, all right, Andrew, you've had enough. Let, <laughs> let, let someone else have a go. <laughs> Well, I can, I can also attest to that too because um, a fun little known fact is that actually Andrew and I used to take a German class together. Yeah. <laughs> and I will say, I will say, Andrew, you're always a great participant in, in our classes. 
Ah, that's good. I, I try not to hog it, but I also I don't want to be the dude who doesn't add anything to the discussion either. Yeah. Nah. Not not that there's anything wrong with that. We're all at different stages of our language learning journey, and um, I don't know if any of you've done a bit of research into people like Stephen Krashen, but he talks about how there's there's a good anecdote where he talks about how he, there would be this Japanese family that had a that would move in every year. They'd have a new manager or whatever that comes over to the US to learn and they'd find out there's a linguistics professor up the hall. So naturally they'd, they'd ask him to teach their kids and he would like, you know, hit a brick wall with them every single time. And part of that's the the kind of culture and, you know, even young kids from Japan, they, they become risk averse very early. And so he'd spend a lot of time, you know, giving them heaps and heaps of input and getting absolutely nothing. But one month basically one month before they go they're they're all you know it's like a, a light bulb goes off and they're able to communicate like um like that episode where bart goes to france and all of a sudden he's speaking in french you know so so it's it yeah so even if you you know are just passively a participant in your language class you are still learning and there's nothing wrong with that but take take some risks too yes good advice absolutely Sharon, how about challenges for you? Um, so for me, when I was learning English in China, I guess the biggest challenge was uh, the lack of language environment for me. Cause, um, and that would be similar to m most language speakers who are learning a language in their own country. Um, so what I did um, was I was um, when I was in year eight, or nine, um, I started buying VCDs at the time. We we use VCDs for like American movies, and I played them um, out loud. And I recorded the movies into my Walkman, and um, I just played the movies over and over again while I I rode my bike to school. And that was like a one hour one way, so you know two hour per day bike riding to school and back home and um before I go to bed I put it on sometimes even when I was doing like maths or science homework I would play it and it would be just like my background music and I would listen to the same movie like maybe over a hundred times you know, until you can just memorize the lines but at the beginning it was all noise to me because I didn't have the vocab and it was just noise and the noise over time becomes something that that you um you can recognize like you you probably still don't know the meaning of the words or the sentences but you can memorize the sounds first and then over time when you come across with some certain words that you have already recorded in your brain, um, you suddenly click with the meaning. And, oh, I know this sound. And, oh, so this is what it means. Oh, then I don't have to memorize it anymore. It's just in there already. So that's how I um, found my learning of English was um, after I started listening to a lot of movies. And then when I was raising my sons, I realized that was actually the same kind of process of a little baby learning their mother tongue. Like, you know, they were just listening and listening and listening and they couldn't talk. And probably, you know, all those noise to them 
um, didn't make any sense at the beginning. And then over time, high frequency sounds get recorded in their brain. And then you started teaching them, this is an apple, that's a computer, this is a, you know, a pasta or something. And then they know us or pasta, apple, they know already because um, I've read something that before they can speak, they can have about 500 words of vocab. Um, yeah, so I think that's that can be replicated for, for adults learning a new language. Uh, but the problem is if you because adults have a choice babies don't so it's really up to the adults if you want to do that because it can be really boring you know just listen to, listening to something that you don't understand over and over again yeah so I kept that habit for over 10 years even when I came to Australia the first two years I was still listening to movies yeah, so um, I guess that, that really helped me with my pronunciation and listening. So um, unlike many of the Chinese students in China who are really good at testing, like they can be really, really good at grammar and have really good testing scores, but when it comes to speaking, they can't. They, they can't speak because, you know, because of lack of practice. Yeah. yeah. Whereas um, I probably wasn't the best at uh, doing testing, but, I was actually able to speak and understand people. Yeah. Um, I've got a similar anecdote from my time in Japan. Um, so I spent year nine and 10 in Japan. And in year nine, my homeroom teacher was the English teacher. And, and yet it was the social studies teacher who had much better grasp of English. And so I asked him one day, like, you know, your English is quite good. And he explained to me that um, when he was a kid, what he would, do is he'd um, switch his radio onto the um, the GI radio, the the American troops, and would listen to that, and had a similar kind of thing where in the beginning he understood little to nothing, but gradually over time he was able to pick out bits and understand it. So there is something to be said for um, you know just having it on in the background. So if you're um, if you're in Victoria, if you're in Melbourne and Sydney, I'd imagine that there's Chinese community radio that's on all the time. Um, otherwise, there's SBS on for time slots, but that's not as convenient as knowing that you can just switch it on any particular time. Or all those Netflix shows that we're mindlessly watching. <laughs> it all counts. Exactly. But podcasts as well. So many podcasts out there these days too where you can listen to kind of on-demand, um, I guess, content in you know different different kinds of content too not necessarily like just the news but all sorts of other things too and so that was a, a lifesaver when i found my first um full-time teaching position because um i was driving from geelong to sunbury and so 75 minutes to 90 minutes to kill there one way so yeah and and listening is probably the easiest thing out of all four skills to do because um you, one, you don't make any mistakes when you do listening. It's just pure, you know, receiving things. And it's you can do it anywhere. Like you can do it when you're doing exercise or, you know, walking or um, you basically can do other things like cooking and you can just play it. Yeah, so you can multitask. Yep. Yeah. That was going to be one of my next questions actually was um, – 
if you could impart all your your best tips and insight to future Chinese learners out there or maybe current Chinese learners, what would you what would you recommend to people if they were starting out? I, I just have three words. Um, exposure, repetition, consistency. <laughs> yep. They're good. <laughs> <laughs> Completely agree. What about you, Andrew? What would your what would your do you have three words as well? Or would you have another another golden tip? <laughs> um I think we've alluded to it, but um, because Chinese is a character-based language, it's learning the radicals and learning how the characters are built up because um, that's kind of how, that's the building blocks of the Chinese language in the same way that learning Latin and Greek roots gives you a massive um, leg up in learning the English language as well as Romance languages, European languages as a whole. Um, so yeah, learn learn those radicals learn them by rote yeah mm. and when tip. it comes to writing um yeah and when it comes to writing i think it's there is no shortcut um you just have to physically practice like you know you you can't just stare at the words and thinking that you'll be able to draw them out like you actually physically have to practice until they are in your muscles like you know the muscle memory eventually yeah, so like for, for a Chinese person, why can we write all the Chinese characters? Is because at school we we write characters to take notes in all subjects. So whatever characters we have learned, it's not like we just practice 10 times and we just remember them. Uh, it doesn't happen that easily. So these characters get reused in different subjects and we constantly practice them in different ways. And that's how we can write a character with it, with our eyes closed. Yeah, because it's, it's in the muscles, it's not in the brain anymore. What you said just before, Sharon, made me think of that kind of classic image of a student like holding a book to their head and just hoping that the information kind of assimilates into their brain. <laughs> like if you hold it close enough, will it will it just go in? No, no, you've just got to practice until it happens. <laughs> Just like anything yeah. else in life, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The 10,000 hour rule. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Some really helpful and great information that you've shared with us. So, thank you both for joining us on Language Chats and sharing your experiences and knowledge with us. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And thank you to you all for, for listening on another, another episode of Language Chats. Um, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. And you can find out more about us and the podcast at languagelovers.com.au. Um, you can also find us on social media. We're on Instagram, languagelovers.au, um, and also on Facebook, languagelovers.au. Um, we also have a Facebook group, which Sharon and Andrew are both members of, um, which is called the Language Lovers AU community. And that's where we hang out. Um, and chat language with lots of other people too, just not on a podcast. Um, so if you want to join us there, look up Language Lovers AU community on Facebook and join our group. We'll see you there. Thanks again. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks, Andrew. Okay. See you next time. Thank you. See you. That's right. Cheers.